Future CEOs, Episode 4. So you want to be a CEO? Sure, go ahead, read your ABCs of Managing book. Or if you really want to be a CEO, then keep on listening to this Future CEOs podcast with your host, Gareth Armstrong, as he gets you up close and personal with real-world CEOs, thought leaders, and industry experts to learn from their experiences and the insight and wisdom they've gained while leading in these challenging and ever-changing times. Are you ready? Then let's do this. Welcome to Future CEOs. My name is Gareth Armstrong. A few days ago, I had the great privilege of talking to Lou Adler, founder and CEO of the Adler Group. It was a fascinating conversation, and in this one, I took a lot of notes. So I would advise you, again, go and get your pen and paper. Perhaps you have a future CEO's notebook by now. Pull it out. You're going to want to take some notes. Before we get into the conversation, let me introduce who Lou Adler is. Lou is the CEO and founder of the Adler Group a consulting and training firm helping companies implement the performance-based hiring system for finding and hiring exceptional talent. More than 20,000 recruiters and hiring managers have attended Lou's groundbreaking workshops over the past 20 years. He's the author of the Amazon Top 10 Bestseller, Hire With Your Head, and The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. Lou has been featured on Fox News, and his articles and posts can be found on Inc. Magazine, Business Insider, Bloomberg, and The Wall Street Journal. Prior to his executive search experience, Lou held senior operations and financial management positions at the Allen Group and at Rockwell International's Automotive and Consumer Electronics Groups. He holds an MBA from UCLA and a BS Engineering from Clarkson University. Again, get your pen and paper ready. This was a great conversation. Here it is. Lou Adler, CEO of the Adler Group. It's so great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Gareth. Thanks for inviting me. Your journey is very important to us, and we look forward to hearing all about it. But before we get there, perhaps what we can do is we can just hear from you, get, get a little bit of background, a little bit of a feel on the Adler Group and what you do. My company is a, a training company, consulting company, and a recruiting company, so it's a little bit unusual. But we've developed a process called performance-based hiring that we've used with different organizations, small, mid-sized, large, to help them hire stronger people. Mm. Sometimes it's a search, sometimes it's process re-engineering, sometimes it's consulting and training. But the idea is to raise the talent bar to hire stronger people, you need to do different things. And most companies do traditional things. We show them how to do those different things. This is not a, an overnight company. You've been at the, the helm for a very long time. Yes, very long time. We're doing this. Well, I've been a recruiter for probably... 30 to 35 years, but the last 10 years have been that process we use to recruit talent, which turned out to be quite successful. Written a couple books about it. Now other companies say, hey, we'd like the emulator, duplicate that. So now we're, we're in the process of our, taking our recruiting methodology and implementing it into other companies and showing them how they can also hire stronger people. Some of our listeners are going to be entrepreneurs who are at the, at the very beginning of their journey. Can you share a little bit of, of that um, journey with the Adler Group? I don't know that my specific history is relevant to that. I think what's relevant is I've worked with many, many smaller companies, let's say in the U.S. dollars, $5 million to $50 million, 
and help them build their key executive staff, helping them hire them, what they need to do to roll the process out. So I think, and there are definite things that CEOs do that prevent them from growing. Uh, and there are things that they can do in the area of hiring people that enables them to grow. So that I think is more relevant than my personal story as a CEO. We have a small company, it's successful, but I think working with other small companies is really what's relevant uh, to what your audience might be interested in. Sure. Okay. Well, let's jump straight into that. And I've got a, a nice, short, but uh, really succinct and powerful question. I, I think it is uh, related to that. And that is, what does it take to be a CEO? In, in your view, what does it take? I mean, we could spend four hours on that question, probably. Sure. A week. I think at some level, so let me kind of, so let me kind of go back. In the 90s, I probably worked with I'm going to say it was probably 40 to 50 different companies, small, let's say small being the smallest, $5 million. The uh, biggest that I worked very close with the CEO was probably $100 million. And I've seen a lot of different CEOs in those groups that were successful and a few that could really enable their company to grow and a few that were quite unsuccessful. Those that stalled, generally the CEO was brilliant, hardworking, not a very good manager, couldn't delegate and couldn't hire good people because good people didn't want to work for that kind in a very constrained environment. Okay. Those that were successful understood business, understood how to develop people, how to motivate people, and how to hire talent, and how to delegate work to give that person the authority, and then had the ability to manage the organization and the people while always relating to the strategy and the business. So that's a whole, I mean, in a nutshell, it's the ability to strategize your company. Obviously, you have to have a product and a business model that makes sense, but being able to build people and allow them to grow and develop and take ownership of that, and that enabled them to get through some traditional areas that their growth would stall. And usually when the, the, stall, the growth stalled is because the CEO could not hire strong enough people, or maybe he could hire or she could hire strong enough people, but didn't let them take ownership of their roles. Hmm. Is there any transfer between those two people? So what I've heard you say is that you've experienced two polar opposites, some that work, some that don't. Are good CEOs able to become better? Are they really able to become better? And are good CEOs able to become worse? I can't say that I've looked at it that way, Gareth, so I don't know that that's the issue. I think if I was to advise a young CEO, Relate, under, I almost call it this concept of organizational mapping. Understand your own personal strengths. Understand what you're really good at. Build a business plan, whatever it is, a year to two years or five years, that's less important. Sure. And understand where those areas of growth are critical for the success of the company. Hmm. And then pursue talent that can take complete ownership of that and be willing to give it, obviously with certain controls, but be willing to give it. I think... The inability to plan, the inability to attract people, the inability to make decisions, all of those issues can prevent that business from growing. And I think when you look at it, I don't think it's a necessary in innate in the individual person. Uh, possibly it is. I don't have enough statistics to relate to that. Sure. But I can certainly see the causes of why companies grow and why they don't grow. I mean, if you have a terrible business model and the market dies, it doesn't matter how good the people are. Sure. Um, if you have a good business model and you have a business a market opportunity, you can raise financing and raise people. Well, then you can have it grow. So there's so many variables there that are, yeah, I, obviously we can't cover all here. But certainly one of them is the ability to hire good people, develop them, having a good business model and pushing it forward. So, man, 
That's as much as I can say. I don't have enough insight to, to get into much more granular detail than that. Perhaps then if we look at it from a younger perspective, maybe your experience will come into play here. Maybe some personal experiences will come into play. But as a young up-and-coming executive, perhaps you've seen some, or again, maybe we can just uh, you can lean on some of your own experiences. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen taking place, or maybe that you've even made yourself, that are simply related to inexperience and naivety? Perhaps also some lessons that you've learned as you've either experienced it or as you've observed it. So my background, even how I got in this business, is a bit unusual. So let me kind of go back to that, which I think is both relevant to what I do now and what I did then. Sure. I have an engineering degree. I have a master's degree in business and finance. I worked in a number of big corporations. And by the time I was 30 years old, I was running a business of 300 people. Mm. It turned out I did not like the group president, and he and I clashed every day. And I said, screw it. I, I quit. Literally, I quit because... Not that I wanted to become a recruiter. That was just happenstance that I knew a couple of recruiters. And I said, ah, I'll become a recruiter and I'll probably find another job in a year. I okay. already, so I knew I was doing pretty well. Uh, I turned out that I was a pretty good recruiter. And I said, oh, this is actually kind of an interesting business. And so that's how that, that happened many, many years ago. But as my first job as a manager, particularly then I very quickly became a director at a Fortune, one of the Fortune 50 companies, one of the youngest directors there. Mm. My boss, who was the VP controller of a $2 billion business, he was only 29, he said, and he was, he was really my mentor and kind of pushed me. He said, Lou, you got to fire people as soon as you get in a job. Okay. Uh, that shows you mean business. Now, I don't know that that's a true, but it turned out to be I took over a couple of failing businesses at 28, and I said, you're fired, and you're fired. And he said, you can't do that. And I said, watch me. And all of a sudden, people knew, even though I was young, that I made, made business. So I think mm. the lessons I learned, now the people I put in there, four out of five times were perfect. So that one out of those five times was terrible and that cost me a year. And my the, the chairman of the company says, you're gonna fire this VP you hired, it was your fault, you gotta learn how to do it, which was painful. The idea is, so the lessons I learned is, you, people make a difference. You have to hire the best you can, uh, and I would say that one lesson, and it's not for me, I heard these, someone else made a presentation, is hire slow and fire fast. Mm. The idea is don't make instant decisions when you hire. Don't make, hey, this, can this person work with you? And that's, it takes time to make, that's a critical investment. You're going to hire a person to be your number one person. I don't care if you're a manager, a director, a vice president, or a president of a company. The people that report to you are critical decisions. Don't make them quickly. That's I've learned, and it does take a long time. If you make a mistake, end the mistake as quickly as you can. Hire slow, fire fast is probably the best lesson. And recognize that every single person you hire is an investment in your company. Mm. If you're spending a half a million dollars or a million dollars, you would make that a very serious investment. Well, by hiring a person, that person makes 100000 or 300000 or 50000 the impact of that person in your company is far greater than their compensation. Sure. So don't make a simple, uh, short decision. Invest in the decision you're going to make. Uh, make the right one. Uh, but if you make a mistake, move fast. So I think those are some lessons that I learned. And I would still think today CEOs are reluctant to fire people and they hire too fast. If you can kind of rebalance that, you're in, you're in the game. This is really your area of expertise. So maybe you can give us one or two insights on how to do that. How do you hire slow, fire fast, 
what are some of the key things that we should be looking at when we are wanting to hire or bring someone into our business? First off, let me kind of give a, a quick plug to two books. My first book is called Hire With Your Head, Using Performance-Based Hiring to Hire Great Talent. And my most recent book is called The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. Okay. Both of them incorporate this concept of performance-based hiring. The idea behind performance-based hiring is understanding and benchmarking how good people take jobs, uh, why they make decisions, and how a interviewer, a manager, a director, a vice president, or president of a company can hire these people. The key, the most important component is good people are not looking for lateral transfers. They're looking for career moves, mm. and they need clarity around that what that job is. I call it a performance-based job description. But I, when I ask a hiring manager and I take a search assignment, and I still do some search assignments, I always ask this question. And they always hand me this job description that lists skills and duties and responsibilities and personality traits. Yep. And I look at that and I crumple it up and throw it in a wastebasket and say, that's not a job description. That's a person description. Mm. Literally, I did this with one CEO who was very aggressive guy became a good friend of mine but i actually literally took it up and threw it on the paper in a garbage can said it's not a job description it's a person description tell me what a person doing this work needs to do and what does this person need to do to be successful because if you can't define that right now you will not be able to hire someone who wants to do that work i call that a performance-based job description mm. it's focused on reorganizing the manufacturing department build a manufacturing capability to increase our capacity by three times, develop a financial management system that everyone can use to understand how to manage and grow our company, develop a sales plan so we can increase market penetration from 30% to 70% over the next two years. It's work that people need to do. So the number one rule, if you want to hire a good person, is to find the work they need to do, and then find people who are motivated and competent to do that work. I think if we have to end the conversation right here, I mean, I would have taken something I may never have thought of any differently. And you really, you've highlighted it beautifully. Thank you very much for that. Well, the wastebasket analogy worked and I knew it would be better without a visual. In fact, I think I'll have to write an article about that one. Okay, let's pull a little bit away from the idea of hiring and let's talk a little bit more about being a CEO. What uh, don't leadership or management books teach about being a CEO in the real world? Let me kind of go back about two months ago. I was meeting the CEO of a company. He had four retail stores in Northern California. Nice company. It was hardware stores. And he was a young guy. His father ran the company. His father was 70 years old. This guy was 35. Very smart, capable guy, but has never been a CEO before. So we're just sitting there at lunch. And he kind of asked me almost that same question, Gareth. He says, what does it take to be a CEO? And I said, now, I don't think you'd find this anywhere. And this is probably another book. I just haven't had time to write that one. <laughs> I wrote this. I said, I took a nap. Literally, it was on a napkin. I said, you have to relate each of your business functions. And he had store merchandising. He had purchasing. He had systems. He had finance and accounting, uh, store operations, and some other stuff. And I said, you've got six or seven functions. What you need to do is tie your business strategy to your staffing. Uh, and I said, most CEOs don't think of it that way. They mm. just come up with the strategy and they do it. And I said, then I'm not going to, I obviously can't visually draw this, but there is an article, I think it's on Inc. Magazine, 
and I, I don't, I'll, I'll find the title and send it to you, Gareth. Uh, you. So at least you can then refer to it. But the idea is I called it organizational mapping. When you think about a business strategy, there's fundamentally four business strategies. Could be product excellence, meaning you, like Apple has got product, great products. I mean, they really, and you need great engineers and great product development people and great R&D people to do it. There's another group, which was this company. Operational excellence was their strategy. And you look at the high-volume retail stores that really have their act together, efficiency. They have to be very efficient at the operational level. Well, that means they need good systems and good operate, operating people. You could also have customer maximization, which is either customer satisfaction, having great customers, and you want high margins, and you want high sales growth. Well, then you need real strong marketing people and salespeople and customer service people. Mm. Another strategy, the fourth strategy, is financial maximization. Are you just trying to use these assets to get as much money as you can, or are you trying to balance it? Well, if you need financial maximization, you need the investment bankers, the financial people, the tight controls, and the treasury stuff. You really got to kind of look at all the financial engineering that's required. So I just drew that, and I said, you can divide your company in half. Half of it's running the company, half of it's growing the company. Clearly, product engineering is has to be a, it's a combination of both running and growing, but certainly customer maximization emphasizes growing. Operational excellence emphasizes uh, running the company. And I said, so now you got all these functions and you got your strategy, and most CEOs don't look at it that way. I said, then you got to have people. Hey, if you've got a product engineering focus and you got you want to produce excellent products, exceptional products to get a, pr- a premium price, well, you got to have great engineers and product. You got to be pushing the envelope on that. If you want to grow market share, well, you better have the best sales and marketing people around. On the other hand, if you're producing stuff and your margins are tight, but you got to be operationally effective, well, you got to look at your team doing that and your systems doing that and your financial people doing that. And I don't think CEOs look at their business that way. So not only do you have to have a good business model, but you got to tie it to your strategy and tie it to your people. You pull all of those things together in some logical balance, you can be very, very successful. Obviously, you got to execute that, but conceptually, that's the way I re- recommend to this guy. Now, the lunch was only supposed to be an hour. We were there three hours. And this napkin got – I mean, he had to take pictures of the napkin as I was doing it because <laughs> the napkin became pretty shredded by the two-and-a-half-hour mark. That was a fantastic, uh, a very well thought out process that you just shared with us. Thank you. I'm happy to do it. Let's go back into just your personal journey again. You've had a business that has now grown and it probably would have started much like a small business that many of the young entrepreneurs that we're speaking to are starting and then it starts to get bigger. Uh, what was your biggest light bulb moment that really came to you as this growth happened and as you really became a, a CEO versus just a, another business owner or someone that was running a small business? My background, and I recognized, while even though I was running a company, literally of 300 people, and I was almost, uh, when I was 32 years old, that's how big the company was when I left, 31, 32, at that moment, I realized I didn't really like it. I just really liked the idea of becoming a CEO at a very young age, but doing it at a young age decided, this isn't all that great. Mm. Yeah, I'm making a lot of money, but I don't have a life. So there was some trade-offs, and I had the luxury of making those trade-offs. So when I became a recruiter, I actually became very, very successful as a recruiter. But I became successful because I was an engineer and had a finance and a process re-engineering background. So I just looked at the process of hiring and realized it was completely inefficient. That became the genesis of how performance-based hiring was developed. I just did it 
dozens and dozens of times, hundreds of times. But it was because of my engineering and process background that I could see these things. Then my search firm started growing and growing and growing. And I said, yeah, I don't really like this. I, I like thinking about the stuff that I just told you about. I enjoy that process. So I recognize, and I had the luxury of doing what I wanted to do. I had plenty of money. I was making very successful as a recruiter. Then I, about 15 years ago, when the dot-com boom came around, I said, okay, well, I think I could scale this up and I can systematize this. Lost a lot of personal money. And I didn't go broke, but certainly lost money. and said, you know, I don't want to, I'm just getting kind of older. I said, nah, that failed. So, uh, but I've got a nice, small, successful training company that allows me to talk with folks like you, talk to different business groups, make speeches, write books. Mm. That's what I personally like to do. And I've had the luxury of being able to do it. I, I did not enjoy being a CEO. It wasn't. And so this is something that I, and if I was, and I do this with my clients today because I help them do it. Once a person gets that, so I can't totally confirm this, but I can certainly confirm it from my own experience. Once I got above a threshold of, hey, I'm making enough money, it wasn't the money that I found satisfying. It was having a little bit more flexibility, doing what I wanted to do, focusing on things that I personally enjoy. Mm. Uh, even this conversation I enjoy and going out and speaking to the next, uh, I'll be speaking to a group of HR and recruiting folks in San Francisco in two weeks, there'll be 800 of them there. I enjoy that concept. So the relevance to a CEO is you have to enjoy what you do. And if it's if it's driving you for the money, okay, there's nothing wrong with that because I see a lot of CEOs that are driven by that. But as I talk with, I've met these people and I've known them for 10, 15, 20 years. And I'm thinking I'm meeting a guy who I met back in probably my biggest client back in the early 90s. I'm having breakfast with him next week. He's a guy, 72, 73, sold his company, made tens of millions of dollars and but it was never the money even back then it was never the money this guy was just a tremendous leader tremendous manager tremendous president and he made every and he really went out of his way to and all the and i placed about eight or ten people all his vice presidents i placed there and he went out of his and it was kind of a boring company made food products don't need to get into details but he just enjoyed the concept the business idea behind it developing the people then he sold it to a big food uh, international food corporation and shared the wealth. And he's still satisfied today doing things like that. So I think you got to find your passion. And if you can create it in your business, and I, I don't want to say spread the wealth because that's not a good good term. Sure. Certainly understand what drives you professionally, what you get most satisfaction from, and then try to embed that culture in your organization. If you can do that, you can be successful. The worst thing, I think, and from my standpoint, I have a lot of stress. I don't like managing people. I mean, I do it, and I'm, if you ask me if what's my, I'm adequate at it. I know what I, I, intellectually, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't particularly enjoy it. I like developing young people. I'm working with an intern now who's an MBA student, and we're trying to help them think and go that and that I enjoy. But managing a, a staff of people, getting stuff done, it's something, well, maybe it's because I'm past it. I did it. Happy I did it. Successful, but wanted to move on. So I don't know if there's any lessons there, Gareth, that I can reach out. But I think it's you certainly have to understand yourself, what motivates you, and then seek out those ideas, which I think are probably universal for everybody, not just CEOs. That is a phenomenal light bulb moment, maybe a, a light bulb experience that you had, and certainly a lesson to all of our listeners uh, that sometimes the idea of being a CEO is a lot brighter, a lot nicer than actually being in the the trenches being the CEO. So thank you very much for sharing that. It's hard work. It's not a, and just to give you another 
essence of how that even happened, which was in some way kind of stupid and childish, I have an MBA from a school in the United States called UCLA. Sure. It's a fine business school, and you might have heard of it for the sports, but certainly a fine business school. But when I started, after I got it and I did real well in school, I was with a lot of the Ivy League school. There's a number of financial analysts who are from Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Stanford, sure. which are more prestigious schools. But we made a bet when we were, I think we're all 25 or 26, we said, who will be the first vice president? So I was being ridiculed, not ridiculed, but certainly uh, you went to a, a second-rate school. Sure. I said, well, let's see who's the first vice president. That's what propelled me. I became the first president, actually, of uh, that group. And then I realized, what a stupid reason for being motivated. Um, <laughs> but it's what was, at the moment, it did motivate me until I realized it. So it was. In, I still could look back at that. And it actually forced me to do things that I probably wouldn't have done. Ask for jobs that were well over my head, take more risks than I thought I would have done. But I did it, and it turned out to be successful. But it was really com- it was that competitive edge that was the initial driver. Mm. That's very interesting. I, I think a, a lot of times what happens is that we are motivated for the wrong reasons. We see the light, perhaps uh, just as you saw when you were in the role of a CEO or later on. And then we, we begin to pull different uh, parts of the motivation together. And then that finally comes together in something that we enjoy doing, or hopefully it does anyway. Yeah, no, it's hard. I think, And again, I think this is it, is you're sometimes compelled and once you start spending money and getting bigger then all of a sudden the momentum of the organization prevents you from doing what you want so that's also part of taking a look at it mm. it's what driving you and then all of a sudden the, or- the the organization has some inertia you can't get out of it you're part of it then and that then becomes uh much more stressful all right lou please finish the sentence for me as a ceo my highest priority every day is to ensure Again, I, uh, Gareth, those are probably not necessarily appropriate because my CEO, I've structured my personal job to not be a CEO. I've hired about, my firm only has 10 people right now. It's very virtual. My senior partner is, I think he, li- he lives in the Denver area. I live in Southern California. Sure. Our web designer is in Northern California. I have a, a, our sa- a sales rep in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, very somebody in Florida, somebody in Texas, so I purposefully have structured my organization to them to make decisions and I can focus on what I want to do. So every day I'm thinking of how do I keep the business running without me doing much? So I'm happy to answer the questions, but I don't know that they'll be as rich or satisfying or as meaningful coming from me who is really an anti-CEO and just trying to do what I want to do. That answer in and of itself is phenomenal. Perhaps I can rephrase it and uh, then you can give me some insight. Let me, let me rephrase it for you to see if this helps. Okay, great. And I'm going to give a story here. Okay. In the United States, on the West Coast, there is a fast food chain called In-N-Out Burger. It sells hamburgers. And it's classic. It was founded in the 50s, 1950s. And it grew and it's got a cult fashion. It's probably got three or 400 stores from, if you can imagine, the United States from Washington to Oregon to California to Arizona and Nevada's in there. And they've got stores all around in there. Well, back in the early 90s, when they only had about 100 stores, I had worked with the CEO. He was a great guy. He was the son of the founder and a great guy. And he was looking to hire a number of people. And he said, Lou, I need a number of people to work for me. He said, well, I don't know what I need. So 
the idea about throwing it wasn't him that I threw the paper in the wastebasket. He asked for my advice on what he needed. I said, So Rich, and I love this guy, really. He got killed in an airplane crash a couple of years later, which was very devastating mm. to the whole community. But neither here nor there. I said, Here's the stuff a CEO has to do, and I wrote it all down. And we've had a blackboard or a whiteboard or a flip chart, don't know what it was. And I put financial management, product development, advertising, team staffing. And I said, Rich, what don't you like to do? He said, cross that stuff out. Okay, we'll find people to do that. This is what you like to do. He liked the team development. He liked the coaching, and he liked the advertising. Okay, we'll we'll build your team around that. So if I was a CEO, the advice I'd give one is, what are you good at? What do you want to focus on? If you're not good at team building, I'd be concerned. That's I think, is almost critical that you have to do that. Mm. And if you're not good at strategic planning, you probably have to be good at But all the other stuff, the day-to-day tactics – I think you have to look at what do you like to do from a tactical standpoint? What don't you like to do? My, in my own mind, you probably have to be good at strategy. You have to be excellent at something that you want to grow your business. You probably have to be good at project management, meaning, hey, you've got a bunch of people. You're going to be spending X millions of dollars of doing stuff. But you've got to be able to implement those things. But there's a lot of stuff that gets in the way. That stuff should be delegated. So if I was to look at a CEO, that's the advice I'd give them. Focus on what you're good at. Be excellent at it, but make sure you can delegate what you're not good at, but then make sure you can tie all the pieces together. Fantastic. Very well rephrased. Brilliantly rephrased, in fact. Thank you. You're welcome. Here's a question that you will be able to answer in spite of the fact that you've called yourself the anti-CEO. What's the best advice you've ever received? Well, there's probably two. There's one guy, my mentor, many, many years ago. He said, fire somebody as soon as you get a job, so you should. And we, there was a bunch of us. We were lucky. We were in a big corporation. It had just acquired another corporation. It had, was very immature with respect to systems and processes and were bringing these bunch of MBAs into the company. So I, in some way, I lucked out in being at the right circumstance at the right time. Mm-hmm. So the advice that Chuck gave me, this guy who was my mentor and boss, he said, fire somebody. But he really said, make big decisions and don't be afraid to make decisions. Move forward all the time. Mm. You'll never have complete information to make the decision, but you got to make the decision. So if you're afraid to make decisions, you're going to fail. And I'm looking at the presence of the United States. I think we have, I'm sorry to get political. I think the abject failure because afraid to make decisions. Even if they're not comfortable, you got to make them. So I think that's rule one. Sure. Rule two, which was in my business, I was in a business group in the early 90s with a bunch of, and it was called Tech, the executive committee at the time. It's called Vistage now. Uh, I was with a business group of about 15 CEOs, and I was always coming up with new ideas. Hey, what about this? So I was kind of this creative engineer coming up with new ideas, and one of the CEOs there said, Lou, focus on what you're good at. Don't uh, expand, because uh, I, I can't remember the exact words, but if you don't focus on one or two things, I'll hit you over the head with a two-by-four. Mm. And that was a pretty good lesson. I said, you know, you can kind of expand and think about all these creative ideas. So it's being creative is interesting, but implementation and execution is equally as important. So I think you got to kind of narrow your focus uh, and be able to start something and complete it. So I think that would be the other lesson I'd, I'd put together. Don't be afraid to make decisions, but you got to keep on moving forward. you got to get the job done. In another conversation with another CEO, a short while ago, he said it this way, and just correct me if I'm, I'm wrong or if I'm hearing it wrong. He said uh, what has made him so successful, and that's the coming question, by the way, what has made him so successful is that he has done six things a thousand times instead of trying to do a thousand things six times. Is that what you're saying? 
Exactly the same way, right. Perfect. Be good at it, execute it, and scale it. All right. Well, then, what one habit do you attribute to your success? And then perhaps we can explore what, although we're answering the question as we go along, uh, habits um, CEOs should develop in order to be successful. But what one habit do you attribute to your success? Okay. So I say it's not a habit. So this is where I say my success is attributed to it. If I had to just look at my personal background, and you asked me if you were interviewing me and said, Gareth, we're thinking of it, I said, you probably shouldn't hire me for CEO. Mm. What I'm good at is being is tying a lot of desperate desperate things around, disparate things around, and seeing the connections between different things. My first job was a systems engineer on a nuclear missile program. I was working with double E's, mechanical engineers, rocket engineers. I was the only guy that could see how all the pieces fit together. Okay. I wasn't good at any of them, but I could see how the system worked. Just like people and strategy and organization and finance and manufacturing, I can see how that works. So my habit is that ability to see these things, not in any great depth, but connect the, connect the dots. Mm. And I enjoy connecting different dots. So from that level, but I think if I had to look at a habit that I think is important is the habit of focus. But I, I, I'd go to Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, begin with the end in mind. Mm. What is What are you trying to accomplish Start with the – and this is when I take a job description. Don't tell me about what the person is. Tell me about what the job is, and we'll find a person who can do that work. Don't tell me what the person needs to have. Tell me what the job needs to have, and we'll find someone who's competent and motivated. So I so if I had to say a habit – now, I had already been doing that, but when Covey's book came out in the early 90s, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, ah, just, yes, that's what I was doing, mm. uh, just understanding the problem and understanding the end goal first, and they figure, okay, if I know the end, then i got to figure out the pieces of getting there. So I think that the ultimate habit is that I am probably a better advisor to a CEO than a CEO. I can say, okay, here's the things you got to do, and let's just go do this, but I'm not going to do it. You do it. Sure. Do the work. work. The heavy lifting is the hard part. The thinking part is what I personally enjoy. That's why I'm not a good CEO, but I can help a CEO who likes to execute. Thank you very, very much. So what should our future CEO's community be studying over and above their formal or university studies, and, and why? I think it's people, and I, I'll go back to it. So Jim Collins's book, From Good to Great, and I don't, I mean, it's a great book, so I, I'm not going to minimize it's a great book. The idea that when you look at why were companies great, it's it all starts with the right people and eliminating the wrong people. And he put it together in a metaphor that uh, driving the bus, they get the right people on the bus, the wrong people on the bus, and go in the right direction. Mm. So I think it's having the right strategy, which is the direction of the bus, getting the right people there, but letting those people also have a chance to drive, not being so totally linear focused on your way or the highway. And I think other than Steve Jobs, there's very few people that are get it right all the time. So it's the ability to get everybody involved and everybody focused and building the team and let them, I mean, you might have, as the CEO, have the right strategy and the right product, but you get the right business model and the right people, you'll be successful. The key is I think the strategy, business model, the project management, execution, making decisions, those are all hard things. But the, the difference maker is the quality of the people you hire and motivate and keep. And I think those CEOs that I've worked with, and I've worked with many of them over the years, that rare ability to build a great team and keep it going is really the key. And I think most CEO, the CEOs that underperform always is because they weren't be able to go through the transition points of their company and building the right team and people. So it's a rare gift to have. 
it's something you have to work on if you don't have it. That's the advice I would give to somebody if they uh, – and I think in most business programs, the emphasis in most school programs, I was on team and collaboration. I sat with uh, Mark Kutafani, the chief executive of Anglo-American a while ago, and he said it in this way. He said, leadership is all about people. Yeah, so similar – I mean, I'd, probably better phraseology, certainly uh, half a tweet. So I certainly would agree with that. Mm, excellent. We're coming to the end of our conversation, and it has been a, a really a, uh, a conversation filled with insight, with lessons, and so we're very grateful to you. A few more questions before we part company. Lou, what book do you recommend all future CEOs read? So you've, you've spoken about your two books. Just give us the titles again, and then maybe one or two others that, you've, oh, uh, that have assisted in your journey. The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired is one. Okay. Hire with your head, which is mine. Hire with your head, the second one. And I, that's somewhat, I don't know that they're, I think they're good solid books and good manuals for implementing a, a team. But the foundational book, certainly first break all the rules, what the world's greatest managers do. Mm. That was written by the Gallup group and there's, but it's called first break all the rules is the main title. Jim Collins is good to great. I think those are worthy in any manager's bookshelf. There's probably others, but I find those two to be foundational. Okay, fantastic. One last question, and then we'll ask you to end off with maybe a final thought or some final insight. If you could go back in time and give the ambitious 20-year-old future CEO, future executive, future entrepreneur, future recruiter, you one piece of counsel that would help you fast-track your career and make it perhaps more enjoyable, what would you share with yourself? Yeah, I would actually say don't be afraid to take a risk and get to bat. Now, American baseball, the more times you get to bat, the better chance you're going to get a hit. And I see people are reluctant to do things. So I think you have to have certain inner confidence in yourself that you know what you're doing. I have never been afraid to ask stupid questions. So maybe that's it. I just, I knew I was comfortable enough asking stupid questions and uh, wasn't intimidated. I, if somebody was unclear, I said, could you clarify that? So I think that was, I just, my whole life I've never been, I've been in situations where I certainly wasn't the smartest person in the room, but I was never afraid to ask questions. Mm. And I think maybe that's the personal advice I'd give is, so now I understand what you're doing. I mean, so much time is wasted because people don't know what they're doing. And they don't clarify it. And they're afraid to, oh, I've, I've got to assume that I know this. So I said, well, I don't know it. Tell me. You're supposed to tell me. And so I think that personally is very, very important. But then once you get the information, it's focus on where you're going and don't be afraid to make decisions. And I think you'll never have complete information to make decisions. So too bad. You just got to make it. Lou Adler, CEO of the Adler Group. It's been a phenomenal conversation. The insights that you have shared, I've been educated. I've been empowered myself. And so I know that our listeners will feel the same way and, and be that way too. Is there any last little bit of advice or insight that you'd like to share before we part company? I guess I would say, as always, try to get better. I'm 69 years old, 68, I'm maybe 68. I don't feel I know enough, so I'm always trying to read more things, whatever it is, trying to understand, trying to change. So I think it's this constant idea to be inquisitive, try to grow, try to become better every day. And maybe that's a little too trite. So at least this constant idea of, hey, I'm not there yet. I want to always improve. So I think that's something that can drive everybody. Fantastic. Lou, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your experiences and your wisdom with us. We so appreciate you um, and we hope that you have all the success that you wish for in the future. 
Great. Thanks very much, Gareth. Appreciate it. If you would like to get hold of Lou or the Adler Group, you can find his details on the podcast page on our website. Thanks for joining us. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and I'll be with you same place tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today on Future CEOs, and we hope you're feeling inspired and ready to take action. Head over to future-ceos.com for show summaries, recaps, articles, and other resources aimed at fast-tracking your rise to CEO status. To make it even easier for you, simply sign up for our weekly newsletter, and we'll keep you up to date on all interviews, special guest appearances, new developments, and more.